tonight we are going to be talking about arguably one of the most terrifying true crime stories I've ever heard of, which Uh. that's saying a lot because all we do is research true crime, but this Mm. chills down my spine. What's up, guys? Welcome to Triple Threat Talks. My name is Jen, and this is Chris. It's a thing of nightmares. It almost doesn't even seem real. I'm scared to go to sleep tonight. I just found out about this story, like, last year. Um, I think someone's writing a book about it. I'm not sure, but I think maybe someone's making a movie about it. Mm -hmm. There's been a few people on TikTok talk about it, but it's a whole lot in a short story so I can't wait to talk about it because holy crap I already know a tiny little wee bit about it but everything that I wanted to ask you I said you know what saving it for the podcast you're definitely going to have questions because the more I dove into this story the more I was like what the actual fuck so tonight we're talking about the story of Daniel LaPlante I've heard it pronounced LaPlante, LaPlante, LaPlante. I'm pretty sure it's LaPlante, but just to make things easy, we're going to call him Danny because that was his nickname. So that's what everybody called him, and we're going to call him Danny. (laughs) Let's go. To first go into this, let's talk about Danny or Daniel. Um, Daniel was born on May 16th, 1970 in Townsend, Massachusetts, which makes him a Taurus. May 16th. Now, we love Taurus. One of my best friends is a Taurus. My my twins are Taurus. (laughs) But I'm like, ah. Yeah, definitely a a stubborn kid for sure. Daniel, or Danny, lived with his mother, his stepfather, and two brothers. Uh, People in the neighborhood that they lived in described their household as messy, Uh, described the kids as disheveled, unkempt. They looked malnourished. They didn't look like they were very well taken care of. Their house was a complete mess all the time. They did not associate with anyone and nobody associated with them. Was it hoarder-like? Like Like, littered, messy, probably hoarder-like, especially when we kind of get into his family life a little bit. Kids in school often referred to him as weird and creepy. He did have dyslexia, struggled a lot in school. This was mainly due in large part to the fact that he was psychologically and sexually tortured in his childhood by many people in his life, but the main culprit being his father. Wow. Yeah. Physical, sexual, and psychological torment is how it's described. Damn. Yeah. So, Rightfully so. He struggled in school. He struggled socially, so he wasn't making friends. People thought he was weird. He was withdrawn, and he was. He was depressed. He felt isolated. Uh, He was hurting inside and didn't really have anyone to help. So teachers in the school decided it would be best if they could reach out to a psychologist to try to help Danny, which he went to this psychologist, and they diagnosed him with ADHD. Now, the biggest problem here is that the psychologist also started making sexual passes at Danny. And a very short time later, 
just full on abused him as well. Yeah. What? Ty. Somebody yeah. that's supposed to be helping them. Danny, with all of this going on in his life, takes on a new hobby. About 14, 15 years old. Uh, so it's like 1984, 1985. At this point, he starts robbing houses and becomes like a little bit of like a like the town thief. But nobody knew it was him. And he was interesting, though, because he would break into these people's houses and sometimes he would take things and then leave odd things behind for them to find. Or sometimes he wouldn't take anything at all. He really liked tormenting people mentally. So sometimes he would break into the houses and he wouldn't take anything and he wouldn't leave anything. He would just move things around in such a way that it would leave the occupants of the home scared because they knew this wasn't how it was. And he got a thrill from that. Mm -hmm. I don't know that right there. What? Yeah. Yeah. He really liked mental torment and really it's all that he knew himself. One particular night, he broke into the home of Frank Bowen, who lived there with his two daughters, Tina and Karen Bowen. Now, what's really sad about this family is that they had just recently lost their mother to a battle with cancer, like very recently. Yeah, so Frank was now widowed. Tina and Karen were now motherless, and they were really just trying to navigate their life. Frank worked two jobs in the wife's absence to try to support the kids, so the girls were often home alone. One night, Danny breaks into the home of Frank Bowen and his two daughters, and while he's in the home, he somehow retrieves their phone number. So he leaves the home, and I don't really think he even took anything. He just took the phone number. He got it. And then he begins to call and start to strike up a conversation with Tina. She was the older daughter. So he's talking with Tina and telling her all of these things. Like he goes to a nearby high school. He's like athletically built, highly academic, uh, quarterback of the football team, like this jockey kind of guy. And Tina and Danny start a friendship where they're speaking on the phone a lot and just getting to know each other. One and day, at that Danny, time, that's all you have, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, exactly. There's, yeah, there's no, no social, social media. media. Yeah. Yeah. No social media. You know, he just called her up and who knows how he introduced himself to her. Like, I saw you or I got your number from a friend. Like, honestly, who knows? But they formed a friendship or she thought she formed a friendship with Danny, the jockey, really smart, popular quarterback of the football team from a nearby high school. Mm-hmm. So Danny asked her if she would like to go on a date. And of course she said, yes, I would love to go on a date. So yeah. he comes to the house to retrieve her for their date. And she opens up the front door to see the real Danny, who is a greasy, disheveled, very malnourished looking, very menacing looking young man, not at all what he painted himself to be to her on the phone and she's like really taken back by this but she's very kind and she really did like him and all of their phone conversations so she's like okay I'll go on this date with you she confronted him about it I I read some sources that said she confronted him about it and then I read some that said 
she really didn't and just kind of went with it. But they went to the fair. They had ice cream. They played games. They were talking and getting to know each other. It only took about an hour into the date before Tina was like, I want to go home. I'm done. I don't feel good. You know, my stomach hurts. And he took her home. She told her dad that the date went south when he started asking her about her mom. And she was like, oh, my mom passed away. She had a battle with cancer. Well, from that point forward, all Danny could talk about was her mom dying. How did it make you feel? What was that like? Did you see her when she died? Like, what did she look like? What did you feel in that moment when she died? Just over and over. Who does that? Who does that? A total creep. A total creep. And this was recent. Like, she just recently passed away. It's not like it had been years. You know, they were they were still grieving. They were just trying to survive. Mm -hmm. So that made her so uncomfortable. She found it very offensive. She just told him she didn't feel good, went home, kind of explained it to her family, you know, and her sister and her dad, what happened and left it at that. She told him though, that there would not be a second date that she did not appreciate being lied to about his appearance and who he was and Mm -hmm. that she just didn't want to talk to him anymore good for her yeah especially at her young age because I think she was only about 15 years old at the time so for her to trust her gut feeling and not let someone coerce her into a conversation she didn't want to have you know she was being catfished oh she was totally catfished and then he spent that entire time prying into the death of her mother it fascinated him so a couple days go by Tina moves on. She's not even thinking about Danny anymore. They're just moving on with their lives. I had said previously that Frank, the father, he worked like day and night to try to support the girls in the absence Mm -hmm. of the mother. He was working nights most of the time and the girls were there alone. Well, they get this bright idea that they want to do a seance and try to communicate with their recently deceased mother. So The dad is gone at work. Tina and Karen are having this seance and they start actually communicating with her. So when they ask a question, they would hear a knock in the wall or maybe at the window, maybe underneath the baseboards. And they were really, really excited because they were like, oh, my God, we're actually communicating with mom. Uh, They told their dad he wasn't really happy about it. And he was like, you guys like this is you need to stop doing that. But the girls miss their mom so much that they felt you like they were truly connected to her. Yeah. You want you to just- want any sort yeah. of communication. Right. With someone that, especially your mother, that had just passed. Are you kidding me? Like, yeah, they were all into it. They were so happy that they were communicating with her. And it really, at first, was giving them a sense of peace. As the days went on, though, The knocks continued when the dad was gone. He didn't believe them. But at this point, the knocks were happening sometimes in their sleep. Every time the dad wasn't there and they started to be convinced that it was like a demon, that it was not their mother, that it was actually a demon. And they were being tormented and haunted by a demon that they accidentally summoned instead of their mother. So they were absolutely petrified every night in their house, hearing knocks and bangs and scratches and taps. They couldn't sleep. They couldn't eat. They were miserable. 
And more importantly, their father didn't believe them. So one night while Frank's at work, they are hearing the taps and they come to realize that the taps are actually coming from the basement, not the walls, which was oh a little God. unusual because normally they came directly from the walls. So the girls grab a couple of kitchen knives and they go downstairs and they turn on the basement light and in writing on the wall in blood said, I'm in your room. Come find me. No. Oh, yeah. Yep. So they. What? I know. It's like something out of a nightmare. It is. They, freak. they lose their minds. They freak out. They run upstairs. They run to the neighbors. They call their dad. They totally panic. Dad comes home. He goes down to investigate. He searches the house. There's nothing there. He said that he felt like the girls were already without their mom. So with him being at work at night, it just made it 10 times harder for them. And he thought that they were attention seeking to try to get him to quit his night job and stay home. So one night, the girls are by themselves again. They're terrified. The knocking, the creaking, the taps, they still continue. They realize that the knocking was coming from behind Tina's bedroom wall. These girls, they're they're so brave. Even the fact that they went down into the basement, that was probably not the yeah. smartest move. But it blows my mind that they not only enter the basement, but once they hear the knocks in Tina's room, they enter Tina's room. I don't know why they did it the first time, because it probably wasn't a very smart decision. <laughs> the fact that they actually yeah. went into the basement being these young they girls. They had balls. <laughs> Brass balls, because I wouldn't have. Never in oh, years. Not mm. even with you would I be like, mm. hey, nope. let's do this. I would have enough evidence to run my ass right on out of there. But yeah. they didn't. They went into the basement. And then guess what? They decided they were going to go into Tina's room. So they walk into Tina's room and written on the wall in blood. Again, it says, I'm back. Find me if you can. So, no. yep. So they panic again. They run out of the house. They call their dad. They go back to the neighbor and they're like, no, dad, seriously, like, this is not a joke. We are not lying to you. Like, please. So he comes home and he is pissed. He is so pissed. He's like, we're done. This is over with. We are not doing this anymore. Like, you girls need to figure it out. I'm trying to work. Blah, 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 blah storms into the house because they're adamant and they're hysterical goes into the house goes up to tina's room opens the door and the first thing he notices is another message written in blood on the wall and it says marry me and soon after marry he me that, marry me yep i'm i'm no. back find me if you can and marry me now i don't know if he i don't know if this was written the marry me like before and the girls just panicked before they saw it but it was the first thing frank saw when he walked into the room very mm -hmm. soon after like within seconds frank turns his gaze and is met with a man standing in the room emotionless wearing a blonde wig and the clothing of his deceased wife of frank's wife whoa Wearing her clothing and a blonde wig and wielding a hatchet. No way. Mm-hmm. So he's I standing can't. there. I know. 
Could you even imagine? I would. No. I feel like I would vomit. Like, I I feel like I would actually have a heart attack. I was about to say, anything wrong with me inside my body would go wrong with me. Like, I would just not be able to. I I can't. It is. Like, I don't. I don't know. What? I know. It doesn't seem real. But this actually happened. So Frank's immediate response was to tackle this man. So a struggle ensues. But the man gets away. He's quick and he gets away and Frank literally can't find him anywhere. So of course, now knowing that his girls are telling the truth and of course, and and the freaky, creepy circumstance in which he found this man, he calls the police and now he's hysterical. Police come and they start investigating. While they're doing the search of the home, they see all of the writings because they were all still there and they confirmed that it was not blood. It was actually ketchup stop mm-hmm. all written in ketchup to look like blood at this point they're just looking for this man who of course can only be described as you know he's like he's wearing my deceased wife's dress and right and like a blonde wig, wig and has a weapon so <sighs> they're looking and they cannot find him anywhere so police are suspicious though that this man is still in the home because of how quick everything went according to frank so they mm-hmm. start looking a little deeper and they end up finding a crawl space somewhere in the house thank god they did yeah they found a crawl space they have a deeper look into the crawl space and that is where they find daniel laplante curled no. up in the walls of the house no yep so They find him in the walls of the house. They subdue him, uh, arrest him. And while they complete their search, they discovered that there were enormous rations of food and that he had tunneled his way in to pretty much every room of the entire house so he could get into the walls of every room in the house. And he strategically made peepholes in almost every room in the house so that he could watch Tina. No. Mm-hmm. The oldest daughter. He was obsessed with her for whatever reason. Dude, yep. what the? So that whole time from beginning to end, you know, I don't know if he targeted Tina when I'm guessing he broke into that house, saw pictures of her in the house. Mm-hmm. It started an obsession, and that's how he gained the phone number, knew her name, and started up the conversation in the first place. And then it just turned into full-blown obsession at that point. But at the same time, he was, you know, he had a hatchet. so He clearly, was sick in the head. Yeah. And clearly he had very ill intent. And, you know, I'm so glad the girls <sighs> did not go back up to Tina's room that first night that they went into the basement and read that note because they surely would have been murdered. Um, but they it got just out. like makes you think like how long was he living in there? Like what? A very, a long time. Yeah. And like wearing the deceased mother's clothes. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Like, so they actually tried to figure out why he would have done that. And they think that, 
he really wanted to keep playing into this narrative he had created where they were communicating with their mom via seance. And so he wanted to pretend like this is what they think, that he wanted to convince them that it actually was the ghost of their mom to draw them closer and then probably hurt them since he had a weapon. But he had been spying on Tina in every single room in the house through the peepholes that he had created for quite some time. So all of this happened to Tina Karen and Frank in 1986. And when he was arrested, he went to juvenile hall and was going to be tried as a minor, as a juvenile. What? Um, right. Well, here's where this gets a little backwards. So what, like, why is the appropriate response? But the problem with that is they did ask that question and they did redact that and decide that he was going to be tried as an adult. So about a year later, once they realize he's going to be tried as an adult, he gets to do something people who are tried as adults don't get to do. He gets to get out on a bond. Oh. Mm -hmm. So he does. He gets out. Stop. Um, mm -hmm. So it's like 1987 now and he gets out. So he very quickly resumes burglarizing homes, doing the same thing that he's normally doing, hits one home, steals a couple of handguns, and he just keeps keeps going. This is when the real terror begins. Danny breaks into the home of Priscilla and Andrew Gustafson. Priscilla and Andrew have two children. They have five-year-old William and eight-year-old Abigail, and she was also pregnant with their third child. So the night that Danny breaks into their home, Andrew is gone. So Danny is greeted with a pregnant Priscilla and promptly attacks her, ties her up face down, assaults her multiple, multiple times, and then shoots her execution style in the back of the head multiple times. Oh my God. After that happened, he went into the children's room, takes William, drowns him in the bathtub, no. and then finds Abigail, the eight-year-old, and then takes her to another bathroom, beats her, and drowns her as well. What? the what is wrong with him in the head oh he's it, it's like beyond repair at that point i mean it really is he's he's psychotic like truly in every sense of the word why would they let him out well that's the big problem in our judicial system isn't it it is mm -hmm. like why would you let him out what yep. the Dude? That's the thing. It's it's the loopholes. Yeah, it's good. You're going to have a harsher sentence if we try you as an adult, but now you can get out on bail. Can't do that as a juvenile. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword. He shouldn't have been given that opportunity. He shouldn't have been given that privilege. Someone being in that gray area between being a juvenile and tried as an adult should have stayed where he was, especially with his mental health issues. But, you know, they really didn't have anything on him in terms of mental health other than he was ADHD and depressed because he had a shit life. But like and trauma. Why? 
the fuck? Yeah, so he does these crimes, commits these murders, and he leaves. And Andrew comes home and finds the most horrifying discovery. Or four. Yeah. He finds his uh, wife lying face down. He said that there was just blood everywhere. (laughs) Man, it almost makes me want to cry because... um, as soon as he sees his wife, he knows that his children are dead and he doesn't have the heart to go look for them. So he leaves, calls the police and they come and he asks the police to go look for his children because he knows what happened to that. He, he doesn't know how, but he just knew that they were gone. So the police start their investigation of the house and then of course they find William in one bathroom drown and Abigail in the other bathroom drown so yeah and like who takes accountability for this and the really messed up part is while Andrew is grieving the horrific loss of his entire family they have no idea who did this there's very little evidence left behind they have no leads um of course we know it was danny but he's gone and and there's no real evidence that danny was ever there police are investigating these murders they do pretty quickly start to make some connections because danny has committed these robberies you know he got in trouble at a very young age, burglarizing, Mm -hmm. you know, so they knew his signature moves, you know, moving things, taking certain things, leaving things behind. And they, and they were able to connect Danny to the robbery in which the two handguns were stolen. Uh, They were able to go back and match those handguns to the wounds in Priscilla's body. Um, My God. They also, they couldn't really figure out his motive. But what they could figure out, knowing his size and stature, is that he probably broke in and just held them at gunpoint while he restrained them. And they probably voluntarily did this. They were able to find household items that were used as restraints and kind of map out how that went down. So at this point, they know it's Daniel LaPlante and they launch a nationwide man search for him. They know everything about him in terms of what he looks like, you know, his height. He's in the system, so they know that they cannot find him. So while they're looking for Danny, a young woman is kidnapped and is able to escape and later was able to identify the man who kidnapped her as Daniel LaPlante. Stop. He escaped, yep, I think in her vehicle. And another person spotted Danny from a picture on the news so there were sightings of him and they did end up finding him about 48 hours later hiding in a dumpster and he was he did that in 48 hours yeah i mean geez as soon as he got out as soon as he got out on bond he he went right back i mean the murders took place very soon after he got out once they said they were going to try him as an adult Almost immediately. Holy freaking moly. He was yeah. a crazy 
psychopath. Mm -hmm. He was. And then he commits these murders, gets out, tries to kidnap someone, runs away, is spotted, found in the dumpster. And but he did it in like the most psychotic way. He got pleasure off of that. He did. And, And I think it was all he knew with his childhood, too. And that's what makes it so sad is he could have gotten help. He could have gotten help. He was seeing the right people, but he was seeing the wrong the wrong person, right? Mm-hmm. He was going to the doctors he was supposed to, but then they took full advantage of him as well. So you think he ever wanted to go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist? Hell no. His entire life was abuse, and this is not defending him in any way. This is just no. me kind of showing the cycle of abuse, the cycle of, you know, a lot of serial killers have really, really terrible childhoods. A lot of murderers have terrible childhoods. Mm-hmm. Once they were able to make that connection, they were able to try and prosecute him. It was a little difficult to prosecute him because other than Abigail's hair being on his sock, none of his DNA was in the house and there was really no other evidence. So it really was up to a jury of their peers to figure out his fate. And luckily, Ooh. I know it's 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 kind of scary because they could have just let him go. But they right. he was prosecuted and he was sentenced with three consecutive life sentences. Good. Tried, yeah, he tried to refute this. He tried to appeal it. His counsel tried to change it to have them be three congruent life sentences, which would only be like 48 years or something like that, that he'd have to be in there before he's eligible, maybe even less. But the prosecutor said absolutely not. And luckily, the judge sided with them. And it was three consecutive life sentences. Good, because he got his chance. If you are that insane, like really clinically that insane, it, I mean, the hair was really all they needed. That's really all the jury needed Mm. to figure out that he was obviously the one who did this. Plus the handgun matched. They knew his signature in burglary. So I believe that they did have substantial evidence, even though it posed a bit of a challenge in the beginning. He tried again and again to appeal. He wanted to get out a few years ago. I think it was like seven or eight years ago. He filed an appeal and said, yeah, it was like maybe 2012 that he was very remorseful and he really wanted to get out, that he was a changed man. They went ahead and did another psychological evaluation on him at that point. And the psychologist was like, this person has no remorse. It's all I cannot believe Mm -hmm. he is still alive. He is still alive. He's been diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. He tried to appeal one other time. It was denied. And he finally did accept that he's not going to get out. Daniel LaPlante did release a statement, I think, in 2017. And he stated... I do not have the words to fully express my profound sorrow. I am truly sorry for the harm I had caused from the very essence of who I am, from the depth of my soul. I am sorry. And of course, Andrew, uh, he's like, hell no. Like, don't ever let him out of prison. Like, he killed my entire family, brutally tortured them, murdered them, children. Don't let him out. Mm. Holy freaking moly he is actually there is the possibility that he will be up for parole after serving a 45 year sentence uh in 
2038. I think he'll be 62 years old at that point. You know, he was oh only 17. He was 17 when he committed these murders. So he's only going to be 62 years old, perfectly able to get out and commit more murders. Hell no. Mm-hmm. He I needs don't to think be that's done for. Yeah, I don't think he's ever going to get out. And I feel like he knows it too. Andrew spent as long as he could trying to prevent that from ever happening. And I think given the heinous nature of the murders and what happened to Tina and Karen and Frank. Yeah. Hopefully he never gets out. Never, ever, ever. gosh he does not deserve to get out he needs to spend his life in prison honestly yeah he really just needs to be institutionalized like in a mental institution Mm -hmm. for a very long time because that's my my question is is he actually getting help is he put on any medications is he getting any therapy for his own traumas you know most people that are in prison are not getting the actual mental health that they're supposed to be getting. Yeah. And they couldn't find him clinically insane. They found him to have antisocial personality disorder. So he like, come on. Oh, I know. But he, he wasn't, you know, seems like he was insane, but he wasn't, he was just a very, a very messed up, very evil person. Mm hmm unbelievable story it sounds like a nightmare what do you guys think do you think that daniel laplante should be up for parole like what i don't know for me personally i don't think so but let us know in the comments if you're watching on youtube please comment let us know what you think and our our condolences go out to andrew um and hopefully karen and tina have been able to heal and don't have too much PTSD and Frank. It's just really bad all around. But yes, tell us what you think. We want to know and we will see you next time. We love you guys. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. And next week it just gets juicier and juicier. So good night. Good night.